0: Father God, we thank you for gathering your people together uh, today. We pray, uh, as we look at your word, that you would speak to us till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. So I wonder how often you think about how you communicate to one another. Uh, Whenever you go on a communication skills course in the NHS, they love to tell you that it's it's not really about speaking. Uh, The tone, the volume... The speed of our voice, that accounts for about 37% of what we say, according to psych- psychologists. But the largest contributor is our body language, at about 55%. But words are still important. They, they count for about 7%. And uh, in a church like this, where perhaps you've come to Britain, uh, having learnt another language, perhaps you don't always get uh, what the British mean uh, when they say various things. Someone has uh, written a handy guide to help foreigners understand uh, what we mean, when we say certain things. So let's start simply, I beg your pardon. What does that mean? It's got three different meanings uh, in English. It can mean, I didn't hear you. It means, I apologize. Or it means, what you're saying is absolutely making me uh, angry and livid. (laughs) Asking an Englishman, how how are you? And he'll invariably say, I'm fine. Or I'm well, thank you. If he says, not too bad, actually, what he means is, I'm probably the happiest I have ever been. (laughs) Um, if you ask someone how they're enjoying the food and they say it's quite good, what he really means is it's a little bit disappointing. But beware if you ever uh, come across someone who says to, says to you, we're in a bit of a pickle, as this is used to signify a catastrophically bad situation <laughs> with potentially fatal consequences. And in our passage today, Paul is concerned with our language, our body language, how we speak, how we behave. And why is he concerned? because the role of the church is to reveal God's wisdom to the world. We, the church, you and I, are to communicate God's message to a world that is seemingly not listening. So we're in the middle of a series uh, looking at Ephesians, and so whether you're here for the first time or whether you've been here every week, perhaps uh, you'll forgive me if we revisit some of the themes we've looked at in Ephesians so far. In chapter 1, we understood... uh, uh, what God's uh, future plan is for the world, what his master plan is, is there in chapter 1, verse 10. His plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Everything is about Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord of all things, and one day he's going to return again and return as the perfect ruler forever. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, whilst that day will be great for those trusting in Jesus, it will also be a terrible day of division, because on that day God's judgment will fall upon those who've rebelled against him. And in chapter two, Paul was reminding us that the consequence of rejecting God is death. Indeed, Paul reminded his readers that they too were once spiritually dead. Because they had rejected God as the rule of their lives and had in place put themselves in charge. And in doing so, we set ourselves against God and we become the subject of his wrath, his anger. But wonderfully, because of God's love and mercy, he offers to pardon us if we choose to receive his forgiveness and submit to his son, Jesus, as Lord and King. And that is the great news of the Bible, and if you haven't heard that news before, do come and speak to myself or Tom or someone else afterwards. Paul has been encouraging the Ephesians to celebrate that they've received God's pardon. Again, in chapter 1, he says, You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. But Paul doesn't just stop there. Rather than saving a group of individuals, God is joining people together, the church. Beautiful and as useful as this building is, it is just a building. It is those following and trusting in Jesus, you and me, that make up the church. And he's not talking about a group of people who would naturally come together. He's talking about those who were once enemies, the Jew and the Gentile. In the summer of 1972, the Olympics were held in Munich, (coughs) in Germany, and the Palestinian terrorist group Black September took 11 Israeli Olympic team members hostage. The Black September group called for the release of 234 Palestinian prisoners. But after failed negotiations and a rescue attempt, all the hostages were killed, as well as a German police officer. And in response to that attack, Israel ordered a secret operation to track down and kill all of those allegedly involved for the Munich Massacre. And that operation went on for about 20 years, and it is said that about 18 people were killed as a consequence. And it's alleged that the family of each individual uh, killed received flowers just before they were killed with a condolences card that read, a reminder we do not forget or forgive. And that was published in Uh, Newspapers uh, across the Middle East also. Well, that conflict is familiar to us today. Uh, It's there in the Bible. And yet God says, I cannot only forgive and forget, but I can join you, the Jew and Gentile, together, as if you were one. And if you need proof of that, you can go to the Middle East today and you'll find Jewish and Palestinian Christians working alongside each other. You can see it too in Northern Ireland. You can see it... Across the world, and that is a wonderful sign that God's strategy, His master plan, is genuine. He has the power to deliver on His promises, and that brings us to the focus of our passage today, uh, as the church, as God's people, because it's central to what God is doing uh, to make this happen. So, in three, uh, chapter three, verse ten, and it is God's intent that through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What an extraordinary promise. God has rescued those who were dead and enemies of one another and used God to rescue them to reveal the wisdom of God to the world around us. And so our body language and our communication is of the utmost importance. So that brings us on to our first point uh, on the sheet. I I think I didn't give Kerry uh, the verses. Christ has raised you to life, so live differently. So we're going to look at verses 17 uh, through to 24. It is said that the last recorded words of Queen Elizabeth I as she died were, all my possessions for a moment of time. It's probably fictional. But how many people don't wish for just a bit more time or the chance to rewind time and make amends for what we did or we did not do. And Paul urges his readers now to live their new life. Indeed, he insists upon it in the Lord in verse 17. He says that you were condemned, but you've been pardoned. You were dead, but now you've been raised to life. So get rid of the old life and live the new life you've been given. And he starts by giving uh, by describing the lives of the Gentiles and when he uses the term Gentiles here, he means really those who are unbelieving, those who are not trusting in Jesus. And so that they're in no doubt that their lives are not to be copied, he makes his feelings abundantly clear. He speaks very frankly. So look with me in verse 17. What does he say about them? He says their uh, thinking is futile. Remember, God's plan is for all of creation to be looking forward to the return of Jesus. But the unbelievers, the Gentiles, they don't acknowledge him as the lord of their own lives, indeed the lord of anything. And so whether they're some of the world's greatest intellects, busy putting a man on the moon or curing cancer, or writing some of the greatest literature of all time, their existence is ultimately pointless. Such pursuits are, of course, wonderful and something to marvel about. But if we're not working towards the day when Jesus is lord of all things then we're on the wrong road. A road not just to nowhere, but a road to death. And Paul goes on to reveal that this is not a passive decision. So will these unbelievers on judgment day be able to plead that, well, they didn't really know any better? No, in verse 18, Paul explains the journey towards the current state. They are hard of heart, he says. That is to say that in some way, they've chosen to resist Christ called to them. And so he goes on. In turn, they've become ignorant of him, darkened in their understanding, and ultimately alienated or separated from God. As children, my brother and I were desperately keen to buy an inflatable uh, dinghy to take on holiday. We used to go to the seaside. And uh, we used to look at all the people in their little boats and their lilos, and we really, really wanted one. Uh, my father, uh, who had some experience of sailing, was not very keen uh, on the idea at all. Um, and it took a lot of persuasion uh, to get him to buy um, a, a little boat. Uh, and it came with one fairly significant condition attached, and that came in the form of a rather heavy metal anchor. In fact, my recollection is that it was so heavy that if you tried to put it in the boat, you'd actually sink the boat. So someone had the task of dragging the anchor out to wherever you were going to take the boat. It was attached to a little bit of rope and then you attached the boat to it. But my father knew that whatever, uh, whether it might, it, even though it might seem idyllic to be messing about in a boat off the, off the shore, and even though he would warn us about the risks of drifting, and even though we might occasionally look back just to see where our parents were, that we'd be having such a good time that before long, the tide and the wind uh, could have easily drifted us off uh, far away from the safety of our parents, far away of, uh, from the safety of the, the shore, and into real danger." And so too, Paul says, that's true for the unbeliever. It may start with an almost imperceptible hardness of heart, but day by day our ignorance will grow. We won't grasp or see the peril uh, as we drift far away from God until perhaps we're barely even aware of his existence. And now we're no longer hard of heart, but we're insensitive in verse 19. Or as the ESV puts it, uh, it's a callousness. Like the calloused hands of the laborer whose task once tore at the flesh, causing pain, alerting him to the damage he was doing. Now the hands are hardened. He's insensitive to the pain. So too for the unbeliever who's now insensitive to the call of his heavenly father. Instead, he goes on to say, they chase whatever makes them feel good, sensuality. They seek every kind of impurity. And yet it does not satisfy but it leaves us with a continual lust for more. They're like addicts, unable to help themselves. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, was one of the greatest actors of his generation. Uh, For the cultured amongst you, uh, he won the best actor for his performance in Capote. Uh, For the more normal amongst you, he was Plutarch Heavensby in the Hunger Games series. But in 2014, aged 46, he died of a heroin overdose. He'd used heroin in the past, but he'd been clean for 23 years. And at the time, there was a real outpouring and a confusion about why someone so successful could end up returning to drugs and dying. And The Guardian asked their readers to share their experiences of using heroin. And one contributor, Vanessa, wrote this. The longer one takes heroin, the greater one's tolerance becomes. Eventually, the little bags weren't enough to stave off the symptoms of withdrawal. And more and more was required just to get me to work, just to get me to sleep, just to get me through this trauma, just not to feel how miserable I was. And then that little promise you you made to yourself, never ever a needle, begins to get broken down because your tolerance is now so high. Smoking the stuff just doesn't touch the sides. Welcome to a whole new game of heroin addiction, needle fixation and vein degradation. Now the game is in a different league. The complications and ramifications are endless, but they all lead to one road, an ever-increasing addiction. I don't suppose the world is really very surprised when an addict relapses, even after a very long time. I know that some here know something of the terrible pain of battling addiction, or watching someone you love to go through that. But I think the world does struggle to understand how a wealthy, successful, Educator man at the pinnacle of his profession adored by many could relapse in that way but then to do so would be to understand that the world's idols will never satisfy us because only god can do that it certainly comes as no surprise to paul and nor should it to us that we all once lived like that Most of us haven't lived lives that the world would think are really deserving of the description given by Paul. And I don't think that Paul is suggesting that all unbelievers are continually engaged in despicable acts that we shouldn't talk about in polite company. But rather he's clear that if we don't know God, then the measure of how far we are from God doesn't really matter. Our idols might look respectable. Indeed, most of them were probably good gifts from God meant for our enjoyment. Wealth, status, the pursuit of knowledge, relationships, our families. But if they've become our idols, then we've chosen them over God, and the consequences are grave. For many in the world, they're yet to discover that those things will never satisfy, but not so the Christian. So look at verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Uh, the ESV translator uh, as but that is not the way you learned Christ. I think Paul here is really shouting to us. He's pulling us up short. You're not to be like that. You were once, but you're no longer like the unbeliever you once were. Why? Well, he goes on to say in verse 20, because you now know Christ. Or as the ESV says, you've learned Christ. You heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with truth, uh, the truth that is in Jesus. Rather than the downward spiral of the unbeliever, the believer is on a new trajectory. We're back in the classroom. We're learning Jesus. As we hear his word, as we see his life, as we understand his character, he softens our hardened hearts. And so in turn, instead of ignorance and darkened understanding, we begin to see more clearly. He reveals the foolishness of our deceitful desires, and he gives us a new attitude of mind. And so as we do so, as we begin to yield to his desire to turn away from our old life and turn to Christ to begin our new life, uh, and this new life demands new clothes. So last year, the Brazilian footballer uh, Neymar moved from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain for a world record £198 million. By agreeing to move to Paris, he accepted a contract that will only pay him £3,200 an hour but he is the marquee player that Paris Saint-Germain wants to increase their global profile. The money they're paying him will be paid for by their shirt sales and enhanced sponsorship deals. The world's media have been gathered at the press conference for his unveiling, and before he goes out, he's presented with the number 10 Paris Saint-Germain shirt. It is arguably the most prestigious number on the football team. In Brazil, there is no argument. Uh, It was the shirt worn by Pelé, perhaps the greatest footballer in history. Neymar wears the number 10 shirt for Brazil. There's one small hurdle in that the previous owner of the shirt still plays for Paris Saint-Germain, but he's agreed to give up the shirt as a symbolic gift. So now Neymar has been given the chance to wear the number 10 shirt for both club and country. So imagine if he pulled out a sort of grotty plastic bag, and from that he produced the smelly, ripped, muddy Barcelona shirt that he played his last game in. Pulls it over his head and says, right, I'm ready to go, let's go. Uh, and uh, face the media how ridiculous would that be even if he wanted to do it he wouldn't be allowed to do it it would be pointless for both him and the club you see it's wonderful and essential to have the Lord Jesus as our saviour that is the starting point he has recreated us he's given us a new spiritual life for our dead bodies but Christ must also be the Lord of our lives he is to be everything for us Our new life deserves, no, it demands new clothes. Just as the team kit is an external sign to his teammates and supporters of his contractual allegiance to the club, so too our lives, our clothing, is a sign to the world and to each other as to whom we belong. Furthermore, the old self is corrupted by its deceitful desires. To continue wearing it would be dangerous to our spiritual health. My father-in-law was a chemist once, and uh, in the laboratory, they'd often use very concentrated sulfuric acid uh, to dry substances. They'd pass them through the, the sulfuric acid, and that would dry them. And one day, one of his colleagues managed to get something slightly confused, such that there was Brat pressure in the system, and he was sprayed with this very concentrated sulfuric acid. And as it started to penetrate the clothes, his skin started to burn. And so, without much thought to the other people in the laboratory, everything came off, and I mean everything. So there he is standing naked, Uh, having taken all the clothes off, because they were impregnated with acid. Left on, they would burn his skin and do him great damage. It won't always be easy to give up our old self. It's familiar, it feels comfortable, but we must get rid of it before it does more damage. Instead, Paul says, put on the new self, created to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24. Like a tailored suit or a bespoke handmade dress, this new self is more beautiful than we can imagine. It is created by God to make us more like him. It won't be instantaneous, but the break is to be purposeful and decisive. The more we know Jesus, the more we understand his love for us as he died on the cross in our place. And as he gives us that new attitude of mind, He will enable that transformation to take place. Remember, Paul prayed in chapter 1 for the Ephesians. God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us know him better. God employs employs the same power in us as he used to raise Jesus from the dead. We can and should have absolute confidence to ask God to help us to live in a way that is completely at odds with how we used to live and the world around us. It won't be easy. It will be a continual challenge. But if God can raise us from the dead, then let's not limit the power to change us radically that will be evident not just to ourselves, but to the world. Christ has loved loved us, so let us live differently. So more briefly, on to uh, the second half uh, of our passage, verses 25 to 32. Christ loves us, so let us love one another. If the first half of our passage focused on helping us understand why we are to live differently uh, to the unbelievers around us, um, and how that is possible, then the second half is rooted in the practical consequences of living as our new selves. Read in isolation, uh, the the command here can appear a little bit like a well-meaning set of aspirations to try and attain. And the danger of that, as Tom reminded us last week, is that we develop a debtor's ethic. God has rescued me and I must try and pay him back. So let's not miss the the, uh, the therefore in verse 25 that connects this section to what we just read. Because you've put off the old self and put on the new self, the likeness of God, therefore do these things. And what follows are six pairs of commands. Each has a negative, a positive, and then followed by an explanation of the benefit. Furthermore, what's common to all of these commands is that they're all concerned with the unity of God's people, the church. They ask us to deny our own desires and instead act for the good of those around us, the church. Paul is returning to that theme that our personal salvation is just the beginning of the story. Whilst we've been joined to Christ individually, we've also been joined to one another, becoming the church. And as it is this church, which is the means by which God is going to reach the world, our world, then we must ensure it's healthy and mature. As a neurologist, I like to remind my colleagues that all other organs in the body exist primarily to support the brain. Uh, as Scientists are concerned that is seemingly where our identity is housed. And indeed, in most countries, uh, if your brain is not functioning, you can be pronounced legally dead, even whilst your heart is beating uh, and you're on a ventilator. To assist your breathing. But of course, without the heart and the lungs and a healthy body, the brain is unable to perform as it should. If the heart stops beating, I might have maybe up to 10 seconds before I lose consciousness. And if it doesn't start again, then I've got three to five minutes before I start undergoing permanent brain damage. Well, you might say, look, the heart's very important. We know that if the heart's not working, bad things happen. But think about little old sodium in my bloodstream. If the levels drop by about 15%, I'll become confused. I'll become disorientated. And by about 20%, uh, I'll start having seizures and I'll die. I could go on. But the point is, the brain may be of vital importance, but it won't work effectively without a healthy body. Likewise, the church will be most effective when its constituent parts, you and I, are healthy, when we're at peace with one another, encouraging and building one another up. So how do we care for the church? Well, I'm not going to suggest that we look at all of these commands in detail, but do let me encourage you to do that personally um, and as you meet in your small groups uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. But let's just pick a couple to look uh, look at in more detail. Um, let's look at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. At first glance, that perhaps seems a little unexpected. Um, it's easy to imagine... Uh, sandal-wearing Christians should never be angry. But here Paul makes it clear that it is sometimes right to be angry. If we're concerned with the holiness of God uh, and that of his church, we will be angered sometimes. When Asia Bibi was tried and sentenced uh, sentenced to death for refusing to convert to Islam after sharing some water with uh, Muslim workers on a hot day, we should be angry at that. If someone speaks untruthfully about us behind our back to a friend at church, We should be angry. But we need to be very careful of our anger. It is invariably a long way from the righteous anger of God. Don't forget, we've spent much of our lives living as our old selves. And we know that our anger quickly grows into something that is selfish and harmful. All too quickly, we can return to what comes naturally to us. Our righteous anger turns to self-righteousness. We fail or choose not to see how we may have contributed to the situation. We discount the times we have done exactly what we now accuse others of. We begin to plot and scheme so that we can get our own back on whoever wronged us. We garner support, thereby dividing the church and isolating those we feel have wronged us. That's certainly how I think often, and I put it to you that this course of action will be familiar to you too. But instead, Paul says, Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Go and sort it out quickly. Now, feel free not to come to my house at midnight if I've upset you. Uh, Tomorrow will probably do, maybe the next. But in certain circumstances, it might be right to come and wake me up. The longer we wait, the more risk there is that matters escalate. And then see what happens. Do uh, Do not let the devil get a foothold. If we're not careful, what started out as a right anger leads to us being complicit in putting the church in danger by inviting the devil in church is far too precious to allow that to happen. Lastly, let's look at verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, I don't suppose many of us are actively stealing, although there may be some for whom that was a part of their old lives. But there are the areas we like to call the grey areas. You know, the ones that are not really grey, but we apply a degree of flexibility uh, where we choose to be creative or willful, uh, willfully ignorant in our tax returns or our expenses forms. Perhaps we may steal time for our employer by not using the time as we should. But more likely, if you're like me, then the issue is really your sharing. As a committed member of the church, am I really generous with all that God has given me? Or am I happy to allow others to provide for the church and other gospel causes whilst I enjoy the benefits? Or how do I use my time at church to serve? Or am I happy just for others to teach my children and cook the food at fellowship dinner and clear it away at the end? When I do help, do I help those just that I like or who I think are important? Or do I give my time to everyone? These things and the other things listed are all things that we will struggle with to a greater or lesser degree. But Paul's purpose is not here to make the Ephesians feel bad and walk away with a commitment to redouble their efforts. Look at verse 30. Does he say if you don't do these things, it will be an anxious wait for you on Judgment Day to see if you've made the grade? No, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, friends, you already belong to God. The King's seal, his authentic mark, is on you. The debt has been paid. You've been pardoned. On judgment day, Jesus is coming to redeem you. And so as you're certain of your salvation, don't try uh, hard to achieve what Christ has already done for you. Rather, live the life you were called to so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you. He sees all our thoughts and desires, and he's there when we fall short of the standards we're aiming for. These things grieve him. He's distressed. He's saddened by them. Just as often the pain we feel when we do something wrong is less about what we've actually done and more to do with the way in which we disappoint and woo those we love. Perhaps that's a reality we could be more conscious of. But rather than being a big brother figure in the background, taking note of everything that we do, writing a list of uh, all the things that we've, uh, we should have done better, the Holy Spirit dwells in us so that he can shape us, so that we will know the Lord Jesus better. But most importantly, Paul says our primary motivation for behaving differently is this. Look at verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I started by saying that Paul's description of the unbelievers might sound rather offensive. Well, that's true, but nothing like as offensive as, we, uh, uh, as it was to God who created us. We were all once like unbelievers, living our futile lives, ignoring God. And yet precisely when we were doing that, God himself left heaven to die on a cross so that we may be pardoned. And graciously graciously, he has called us back to him. He's made us part of his family so that together we too can see many more of our friends, our families, even our enemies, turn back to him. So if you know this, why would you want to go back to death, Paul says? You had nothing, but in Christ you have everything. So make every effort to know Christ, imitate him, put on the new self that he's prepared for you, and love him and love one another like he loved us. We read Acts 4 earlier, and I'm not sure there can be many more challenging passages in the Bible. It is a wonderful picture of the church God wants us to be. Do you remember? They were one in heart and mind, they cared for each other's needs, and with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons I find it particularly wonderful and at the same time challenging is that it was a real church. It wasn't an imaginary exemplar for us to imagine could never be attained, but it was real people, people like you and me, those that were once futile unbelievers, now wearing the new self. So what would it be, what would the effect of a church like that be in our local community? What would be the effect of its members as they went about their day-to-day lives? Wouldn't it be wonderful if St. John's and every church was like that? So as we chat afterwards, as we meet week by week, as we attend the Vision evening this Wednesday, let us help one another to be transformed into the individuals and church God has created us to be. Not through our efforts, but rather as we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus. So he's not just our saviour, but our Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for your rescue. Father, we thank you that you want to know us, you want to draw us near and to unite us as your people. Father, we thank you that you have great plans for us, your church. Father, we pray that in your strength we may change what we were into what you want us to be uh, for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.